Father, we do praise you this morning that you are more than able to accomplish all that you desire and all that you have revealed that you plan to do, not only for the entire universe, but you've made promises to us as individuals, and we can rest in them and trust that you will do what you have said. And as we're looking at what you reveal concerning faith, that it'll be something that uh, is living in us, that uh, that'll be the characteristic that separates us from the rest of the world, that we'll be people that trust in you. We desire to be cleansed of any sin. Anything needs confessing, we desire to do that now. And in full fellowship, that your Holy Spirit may impact us. And we desire that your word come alive this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A lot of you read World Magazine, and I don't know if you noticed, but one of the last editorials towards the end, the second to the last one, every issue, pardon me? Andrea C. Peterson. Yeah. I kind of like her because she has kind of the same odd humor as I do, I guess. But anyway, not the last issue, but I think the issue before, she has a little thing on waiting, basically waiting on God, Abraham waiting, and she uses Abraham as an example. She doesn't necessarily refer to faith, but that's what faith is all about, is waiting or trusting that God's going to do something rather than our own energy or our own strength. But it's, it's kind of a neat little article. If you haven't read it, you're welcome to borrow this issue here. In the book of Romans, we've been looking at this concept of faith, particularly Abraham's faith. He's given as an example of justification by faith. But towards the end of chapter 4, in one little passage, I think we have an illustration of what biblical faith is all about. In fact, I've come up with, on your outline sheet, from the passage, eight elements of biblical faith, and we've already looked at most of them, so I'll give you a quick review, and then we'll get into the last few, and hopefully get through the rest of the passage. So Abraham is writing theologically. Remember, the book of Romans is probably the most theological book, because it's written, and a lot of... uh, Bible teachers and, I guess, individuals don't pick up on the fact that he's writing to believers. Some people think he's writing to the unbeliever. He's talking about the unbeliever, but it's directed towards a believer, and it's very theological, because an unbeliever wouldn't understand that. And I see it as having a purpose that it strengthens us to be able to understand not only the world we live in, but people that we interact with so we can be more effective in sharing the gospel. So the book of Romans does deal with the gospel, but it's not directed to the unbeliever directly. It's indirectly for the unbeliever through you and I as believers. Yep, you guys have to sit in the rowdy road. <laughs> so, believers in the first century, this was not a pleasant place to be, because if you were in the Colosseum, more than likely you were experiencing persecution, and many believers died at that very site. It's one of the sites that we plan on visiting in the trip to Rome and Israel next year. So we've been looking at God's provision of righteousness, the unbeliever, and we need to think of creative ways to be able to communicate to the unbeliever that he stands condemned before a holy God. So that's a long extended section that we spent many, many months, actually. Condemnation of all humanity, verse 18, chapter 1 through chapter 3, towards the middle, verse 20. And it's not till verse 21 of chapter 3 that he begins to give the solution to that condition of the unbeliever. All of us were there. All of us were lost at one time. And obviously, there are many in our culture that are under that condemnation. So justification starts in 321 through the end of chapter 5. 
And we've been looking at the central passage, or we did look at it, 21 through 26. I've been emphasizing that that's just one sentence, very complicated. An unbeliever would have a hard time working his way through the details of it. In fact, most believers have a hard time working their way through that one long sentence from 21 to 26. But he basically outlines how we access that provision that God made. So you have the element of God providing, but we receive it by grace through faith. And he supports that with the rest of the chapter, 27 to 31, the priority of justification. It's by faith and faith alone apart from works. And we're in chapter 4 looking at the pattern for justification. Because in the first century, any Jew would uh, challenge any new teaching, or at least he should, if he didn't, he should challenge anyone that would bring something that appeared to be new and say, well, support it from Scripture. In other words, if you can't support it from Scripture, then it's probably not something that is worthy of consideration. So Paul goes to the Scriptures of the first century, the Old Testament, and takes the prime example, Abraham, and that gives a pattern for justification. So from the very beginning, man has always been justified by faith or through faith, by grace, and nothing from man. It's all of God. It's God's provision. And hopefully next week we'll look at the profit of justification or the benefits. I use profit to use the alliteration there. So chapter 5. So we're looking at... Justification of Abraham, there's two parts of chapter 4, first 12 verses. He supports justification by faith from Abraham, and the Abrahamic covenant seems to be the focus of the rest of the chapter, 13 through 25. We have the Abrahamic promise, 4.13, and the alternative to grace is law, and he shows that the two are incompatible. If law is the means by which we access God, then it nullifies faith. So he does away with that, and he gives an assuring purpose. In other words, the purpose even goes beyond Israel, goes beyond the nation of Israel to Gentiles as well, 4, 16, and 17. And we're in the fourth part of it, 18 through 25. We have back to Abraham, just as he started. Now Abraham is an example of faith itself. Not just justification by faith, but faith itself. And in verses 18 through 21, I see the nature of faith laid out. And we have at least eight elements, eight of the major elements of biblical faith. We've been distinguishing between biblical faith and a non-biblical concept of faith. Faith is not nebulous. Faith is not blind. Faith is not in terms of quantity, although there are passages that speak of great faith and little faith that way, but the emphasis of the Bible is two things, two major things with other things in there. Remember the two things that biblical faith must be, and it distinguishes it from non-believing faith, you might say? In who it is. In who the faith is. In who or the object, the object of the faith, exactly. The unbeliever has faith. Everyone has faith. And I've given several examples. We exercise it every day. Some of the examples, just sitting in a chair, you trust that it's going to hold you up without collapsing and doing damage to you. So everyone has faith. It's not an issue of having it or even the quantity, but the object, and we'll get to that in a moment because we haven't got to that on the outline. But what's the second major element? The content of that faith. In other words, it is based on revelation, what God has said, and all of that is in the passage. So in verse 18, in hope against hope, this is kind of an element of faith, is hoping in some outcome And even hope is different biblically than, say, a secular view of hope. It's not a wish. It's confidence. And in Abraham's case, he hoped in what God had said, and everything that God said goes against everything in his situation, in his circumstance. 
That's why it's hope that is in God, and everything else goes against that hope. So it's in hope against hope. He believed. There's the key word. So we've been looking at that word and several passages related to it. So that he might become a father of many nations. We've already looked at that because that was part of the earlier text. Comes right out of the Abrahamic covenant. According to that which had been spoken, and he goes back to Genesis 15 again, so shall your descendants be. So there's the content of his faith, what God revealed to him. And in his case, he had a revelation very directly, a revelation that God made clear to him. That was God's word. It was perhaps even audible to Abraham. And then verse 21, without becoming weak in faith. So we look at 18. He contemplated his own body. In other words, he's looking at the circumstances. Circumstances say the very opposite of what God has promised. In other words, what God has promised, there's no way. In fact, we see growth in Abraham in his faith. So he contemplated. By the way, I didn't camp on that word, but that word contemplated has the idea of looking seriously or looking intently or uh, considering all the options type of idea. In other words, you're thinking about it. It's not a casual thing. In other contexts, I could give you other usages where this is thought through. And obviously, it's pressing on Abraham because of his history, his background. His wife is barren. In fact, the text tells us that. Contemplated his own body, now as good as dead. In other words, there's no way. There's no way from his perspective since he was about a 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb, she's never had a baby. And she's 90 years old. So how are they going to have a, a child? In fact, how are they going to have a multitude of nations? They can't even have one. Okay? So verse 20, yet with respect to the promise of God. There you go. There's the content, what God has promised. So the better we know Scripture, the better foundation we have, to be able to exercise faith. In fact, the more you know scripture, the more your faith should increase, the strengthening of your faith. He did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong. There's the idea. Faith grows. Strong in faith, giving glory to God. Another element of faith that we'll look at. So he did not waver in unbelief. Just from last Time, faith is like Wi-Fi, it's invisible, but it has the power to connect you to what you need, right? little analogy there. So last time we looked at five elements of biblical faith. It has a supernatural vision. It's kind of my way of capturing in, in hope against hope. In other words, we have, because of the second one, because of what God has revealed, we have an idea of how God is going to work. We have a vision or an idea of an outcome. And that's what we place our hope in and faith in because God has said something or revealed something. Now we have kind of an idea. We don't know all the details or sometimes we don't know the timing, but we know if God has promised it, he's going to fulfill it. And some of those promises we saw last time go far beyond you and I. In other words, some of the things that God has planned for you, he also intends to carry over in your children and grandchildren and your other descendants after that. Just as Abraham, much of what God promised Abraham, Abraham never saw it. So it goes way beyond Abraham. But he had an idea of how these many nations were going to come about now, he had to grow in that and make some mistakes on the way. We talked about that. But eventually, he uh, solidified that faith in Genesis chapter 22. So it has God's word as content. That's huge. That distinguishes it from faith of, uh, say, a superficial Christian or the faith of the unbeliever. The unbeliever believes the content of his faith is his own resources or his own abilities. It does not retreat, and what we said there, in fact, we used Abraham as an example, doesn't mean that you don't have ups and downs, but it it has a progress to it. 
And you can see that from the life of Abraham, that's verse 19. It looks beyond the circumstances. We focus on that. Everything in Abraham's experience said the opposite. There's no way that this is going to take place. That's why it's a supernatural vision. It has to be accomplished only by God. And that's what faith is all about. In the things that God has revealed that cannot be accomplished any other way. And fifthly, it's victorious over doubt. That's 420. I think that's where we left off last time. So let's look up Matthew 21, 21 that reinforces that. And it's in the context of faith as well. And James 1, 6, who's got one of them? 21, 21 up here. The second one going once, going twice. Okay, Dwayne, James 1, 6. You got it, Linda? Oh, seeing his disciples were amazed. How was the fig tree? And Jesus answered... Now, this is in the context of the cursing of the fig tree. And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. Interesting. Without doubt, in other words, the element of complete trust... In other words, we have confidence that God is going to do what he says. Now, this is a little puzzling. In fact, Karen asked me about it last week, so I want to kind of expand upon it a little bit. Uh, What Jesus is emphasizing in this passage, not what we tend to emphasize. We tend to emphasize, well, we need this huge faith that is able to call on the Sandia Mountains that they be uprooted and moved away. That's not the point of what Jesus is pointing at here. He's using, I think, a little hyperbole, but nowhere in his word, unless you can find maybe a passage, I don't know of one, where he has ever commanded or his word reveals that it is his will to rip up the Sandia Mountains and move them. Or to, except in this case, curse the fig tree, and in this case, what happened? It was done. So the emphasis is not in this very unusual circumstance, but the emphasis is more on not doubting and having faith. And I think what is behind everything Jesus is saying are the elements that we're talking about. So if God has revealed something, and if he has revealed that he wants a mountain uprooted, you can pray that prayer, and you can be assured that God is going to uproot the Sandia Mountains. That makes sense? Because you have to look at the content. In other words, is there revelation concerning that? So that's the emphasis of what Jesus is talking about there. So it's victorious over doubt. Dwayne, James 1.6, kind of reiterates the same thing. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. Without doubting. And, and by the way, the word there and the word in this context has the idea of kind of having two different positions here. I'm kind of wavering between two positions, back and forth. Do I do this? Do I do that? Do I do this? You're kind of divided in your thinking. Rather than single-minded and single-focused, in that this is what God has said, and there's no alternative. In other words, this is clear. Now I can put my confidence and faith in what God has said. Mary Lee. Is that, as I'm thinking through it, we can ask for something, we have no clue, we feel that God has said, I will do this for you. We have no clue how that We feel that God has said that? Yeah, we do. We, We believe that he has said that. And so, but then we try to... The scenario together of how God's going to do yes. it, rather than saying, Lord, you led me to pray this way, you've led me into this action, I lay this before you because I don't see how it, it's going to happen. Yes. That. Because sometimes when we start doubting, we think, well, you know, now is he going to you know, take an atomic explosion that's based to get rid of the mountains? Is it going to be a, a massive upheaval? Of Maybe intense Hagar, babies through Hagar, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so we start to plan for God. We put him in a box. Yeah, we'll set him aside, and we start to spin out our own scenario of how this promise is going to be fulfilled. Is right. that kind of what we're yes. saying here? Yeah. No, we talked about that as well last time. We go, and I'm going to reemphasize that again, we look for the eternal principle that's involved. 
And in case of Abraham, we used him as an example, but there's other examples as well. So it's victorious over doubt. In other words, there is a battle. In other words, I don't see how this is going to happen. And as we look at things from our normal perspective, I don't want to say flesh, but just normal, natural, there's no way that we see a fulfillment of what God has promised either in principle or somewhat more clearly like... Finite, worldly. Right, yeah. So we're kind of back and forth, and what the passage is encouraging us is we overcome that. In other words, we settle it, settle the doubt. And it also grows, the last part of verse 20, but grew strong in faith. So Abraham is an example. We won't go over it, but I gave you several examples in the life of Abraham. I focused on the lapses of faith, but he learned from the lapses as well. And we grow as we exercise it, or sometimes when we fail to exercise it, and then we see the consequences of it. And we talked about the consequences of the Ishmael scenario in Abraham's life, and we probably all have examples in our lives as well, where, oh, I should have trusted God instead of my own resources, or I didn't trust in that promise, and it would have eased a lot of pain or a lot of uh, hardship if I had simply just trusted what God assured me of, rather than trying to solve this thing on my own. Okay? So it grows. So there's a growth process, and Abraham is the example, again, that Paul is using. So one of the elements that I've got here is it grows in time. Spiritual growth as well as growth in faith. And to reinforce it, there's several other passages that encourage us along those lines. Let's read these as well. Somebody got Luke 17.5 and okay, Karen, 2 Corinthians 10.15. Someone want to do that one? Connie, 2 Thessalonians 1.3. All right, Terry. Luke 17.5. You got it, Karen? And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Okay, increase our faith. This is a prayer of the disciples. And what does Jesus do? I think if you read the context and read in further, you see that God does several things. And part of what he does is he gives further revelation to give a better foundation for that faith. In other words, the content. 2 Corinthians 10, 15. So it's legitimate to pray that God increase our faith. But let me warn you, be careful, because one of the things that God uses mainly to strengthen our faith is what? Hardship. Exactly. So sometimes God will use a circumstance where we have to trust him. And it's hard sometimes. So who's got, Connie, do you got Second Corinthians? It's not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope. That as your faith is increased, we shall be enlarged by you. Okay, as your faith is increased. And there's many other passages that speak of the increase of faith. So we grow in time. And I trust that God, as is the example of Abraham, he brings circumstances into our experience primarily to encourage us to trust him in them. And our lives should be eventually mature to the point where we more consistently trust what God has said and we trust him. And the main trust is that he can handle whatever circumstance that we find ourselves in. And there's literally maybe millions of examples in scripture of the people of God, their circumstances are different. But the universal principle there is that God always meets the need when people call on him. Now, sometimes he lets us suffer the consequences of not doing that or not trusting him. Mary Lee? Growth in time also reinforces the fact that if you are praying for something, family member, anything you're praying about, that you should not quit praying because you think, so-and-so is beyond the reach of God. This is never going to change, blah, 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 you know. Because he uses processes right. in time, it marks in time. But right. he's not limited by what you see. Exactly. And we should not limit him by saying, 
you know, this is hopeless. Yes. A lost cause. Right. In fact, let me add to what you're saying there. Uh, we could add, when we are in a difficult situation that calls upon trusting in him, and the circumstance doesn't seem to go away, we do exactly sometimes what you do and say, well, this is useless. I'm not going to pray anymore about this. I'm going to doesn't seem like it's working. God's not answering. Think it through. Is God not able to handle your little <laughs> trial, your little circumstance? Does he not have the power? Could he not instantaneously remove that circumstance? Could he not in a fraction of a second, a nanosecond, totally change that circumstance? Because he's omnipotent, he could. Why doesn't he? Well, maybe he's doing something in me that I need to look at. I continue to pray, and now I can redirect that prayer because he has my best interests in view and maybe search out what is he doing in my life. And you might be amazed that shortly he answers or removes the circumstance that you find yourself in. Karen. I like the one in Isaiah when God asks, he says, is my arm too short? Yep. I've oftentimes thought about that. It comes under the same thing. Nothing is impossible. I love that idea. Is my arm too short? Exactly. It's a rhetorical question, but it's a good one. Rhetorical and very visual. Very visual, yeah. My arm's deformed. (laughs) Right. Very good. Second Thessalonians 1.3, Terry. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. This is also a passage where Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians in terms of their faith, building them up and encouraging them. He's encouraged, but the, the emphasis there is their faith is growing. It's a growing thing. It's visibly more evident as time goes on than it was before. So faith can develop and, in fact, should develop. So number six element of biblical faith, it grows as we continue to trust him. It's like athletics. The more you do a skill, you not only get stronger in doing it, but you also become more proficient and you do the skill long enough and consistently well enough, then you get paid for it, perhaps. And here's another element, giving glory to God. When we are trusting God, then he is the one that gets the glory because we are trusting that he is the one that's doing it, and others are able to see that. That's why Paul praises the Thessalonians in that passage that we just read. Because it's evident in them, and it's evident that they're trusting God, and God is the one that gets the glory. In fact, everything that we do, we should do to the glory of God, including even just trusting him, whether we eat or drink, exactly. <laughs> First Corinthians what? 10.31. All right. So giving glory to God, and there's passages that encourage that. It glorifies God, and again, oftentimes it's through testing, but it's in those dramatic circumstances that are the most evident to everyone around. An example of a very evident situation, here's a man in John 9, somebody got that one? And somebody else looked at John 11. Two circumstances that were beyond human capability. Dwayne's got nine. Somebody got 11. Connie's got 11. Now, let me give you the background here. Here's a man. This is one of the miracles that John, remember, series of miracles in John that testify that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. This is one of them. Here's a man that has been blind all of his life, and Jesus encounters him. And notice the explanation here. In other words, God is going to act. Now, we don't even know whether this man even prayed or whether somebody even prayed, but we're going to see in verse 38 that faith was involved. So God allows circumstances, sometimes very dreadful and difficult, like being blind all your life, in order that he can intervene 
and as people exercise faith, he gets the glory. You got those three verses there. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he would be born blind? See, the assumption is, this guy's in a dreadful situation. There must be sin involved for him to be blind. Was there a problem with his parents and God is punishing his parents? Was there a problem with him? And, well, he was born that way. How could it be a problem with him? Anyway, go on. Keep reading. Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God would be displayed in So that the works of God could be displayed in him. In other words, God is going to be glorified. And if you read further into the text, skip down to verse 38. But the whole passage, it's evident. In fact, it speaks even to the Jewish leaders that are hardened against Christ. They don't have an answer to it or an explanation. The only explanation is that God has acted and God got the glory for that dreadful circumstance. You want to read 38? And he says, Lord, I believe, and he worships him. So it ends in the faith, even of the recipient of the miracle. The text doesn't tell us, but along the way, there were several that saw and had to give glory to God as a result of that. 1140, this is the, yeah, the incident with Lazarus. Remember, Jesus delays coming until it's certain that he not only has died, but he's in the grave four days, so it's evident that he's not going to come back. There's no earthly circumstance that's going to bring him back, no doctor. In fact, what's the response of the women? And Oh, yeah, it's not going to be a pretty sight in there. Don't, you know, it's going to be odorous. And what does 1140 say? We could read the whole passage, but let's focus on it because it deals with faith. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? If you would believe. In other words, believe. He gave her revelation. They discussed resurrection. And he calls it to her attention. That's the content. The content is God can raise the dead. We're going to see that same content that Abraham had, that same revelation in this passage. So it glorifies God through testing. We could look at every one of the miracles of Christ. We could look at many other passages as well. But when we trust God, God gets the glory. And I think in many cases, that's the point. He wants other people to see that he is able to deal with impossible circumstances. And he uses us as the instruments to broadcast that, sometimes to an unbelieving world. Okay? So 21, being fully assured, strong word there, that's the idea of hope, it's hope, in hope, against hope, but fully assured, so fully assured is in the context of hope in verse 18, being fully assured that what God had promised, there's the content, and he promised the Abrahamic covenant, uh, last part, he was able to perform. He was able also to perform. In other words, there's a correspondence between what God has said and what God is able to do and uh, what God will in fact do. So he was able also to perform. So that brings us to our last element. It has the true God as its object. Biblical faith as God as its object. The God of the Bible That is the object. And there are many passages in the work study that I did, uh, I didn't count them, but dozens and dozens of passages that speaks of God as the object. That's the only object. Uh, You might say the word of God as well, but that's more the content, what God has said, the revelation of what God has said. And God is the object. We're trusting that he is able, and he is the one that's going to act. So that's verse 21. Objects of faith is based on God's ability. We can look at some reinforcing passages in a context of faith. Who wants to look up Matthew 19, 26? Jacob, you haven't read yet. You want to do it? 
Somebody, Second Timothy one twelve. Mary Lee's got that one. Matthew nineteen, you got it, Jacob? Yes. Nineteen twenty. So Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but God all things are possible. Reinforces the idea God is able to do what he says. And this is what Jesus teaches as well. God is able to do the impossible. Second Timothy one twelve. Which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. That's faith. In fact, the faith, the word faith there is used in the sense of even Paul, what's been entrusted to him. But the context is he's fully convinced. He's fully confident in God's ability, and there's many other passages as well. I'm just giving you a sampling here. And simply the omnipotence of God. He's described as as the Almighty, and we could do an entire study on the omnipotence of God. We could spend a month on that and not exhaust all the passages. Every miracle of the Bible is a demonstration of the omnipotence of God. Lots of incidents in the Bible, like uh, the Genesis flood, speak of the omnipotence, just the creation itself, the omnipotence of God. If God is omnipotent and able to create a universe and set everything in motion, you think he could handle that little ripped off toenail or whatever you're (laughs) suffering from? God's omnipotence. And in this passage, notice what he already has said in 4.17. What does that say? So I don't have to look it up. I'll just read it. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the sight of him whom he, this is Abraham, believed. And who did he believe in? He believed in God. That's the object of his faith. Even God. And he believes the God of the Bible who... Gives life to the dead. And the passage we just looked at speaks of the deadness of Abraham. As far as having children, he's dead. As far as his wife having children, she's dead. But the God who he believed in is the one who gives life to the dead. And not only that, but calls into being that which does not exist. He's going to call a multitude of nations out of something that does not even exist in terms of one baby. In fact, it may be an allusion to the entire creation. God called the whole creation out of nothing. Here's an ex nihilo creation passage that you can use. So God is omnipotent. And then later on, we'll get to it. But for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Our God can raise the dead. He's the God of the Bible. Hebrews eleven nineteen. Connie, you have it, right? Yeah. Um, he's talking about Abraham attesting with Isaac. Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him. Abraham believed in resurrection. The Hebrews 11 passage says it, and this passage says it. The God who creates out of nothing, that's also in verse 18. This is the God that certainly can produce a child for Abraham, and in fact did in Genesis chapter 21. So those are objects of our faith, is God himself. Now verse 22, we have the results of this faith. It's kind of a reminder of what he's already talked about. So let's look at that real quickly. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. That's been the theme of the whole chapter. Justification is by this faith that, in fact, trusts in what God has done. And he goes back to the beginning of faith. But I think the emphasis throughout here is the whole life of Abraham, because he's going to talk about this being an example for us as well. But it begins with justification by faith or the receiving of God's righteousness. So he goes back to the Genesis 15 passage. He's seen over and over in this passage here. So the results of his faith, uh, 422, 
We have the application of his faith, 23 through 25. So let's look at it in the time that we have remaining. Verse 23. Now, not for his sake only. Who's the his? Abraham. In other words, God worked in Abraham not just to produce the nation of Israel and a multitude of other nations, not to just give Abraham and Sarah a child in their old age so they could, they could be happy and have grandkids and, and all that that you all enjoy. It's not just for him. In fact, we can apply. And let me remind you of some of the things we talked about. And I pulled out some of my slides. Mary Lee stimulated us to look at this concept of how do you apply scripture in other words, how do you take the promises that are given to somebody else? Are they applicable to us? And I made the point that all of Scripture was written to somebody else. We're reading somebody else's mail. But yet we can draw application. How do we do that? Mary Lee gave an example of an invalid application or a faulty application. So let's take a look at that. First of all, there's an application for Abraham, and the biblical text tells us how it worked out in Abraham. In fact, Paul is using Abraham as an example, so God did work in him now. But it also says, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him. In other words, the whole concept of justification is written for us as well, but even more, the whole concept of faith itself. But for our sake also. And that's true of every incident, every passage. We said Philippians is written to the church at Philippi. Romans is written to the church, churches, house churches in some cases, that existed in Rome. But because of inspiration and also inerrancy, all of Scripture has application to us as well. So let's talk a little bit more about that. For our sakes also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him. Emphasis is still in the area of faith. So here are the principles, and I just pulled these slides off of my hermeneutics course. There's actually three, but the last one is just kind of putting the first two together. What did we say was the first principle in coming up with applications from Scripture? To come up with a valid application? Applications for life today. Context. Well, context, but even broader than that, interpretation. In other words, understanding the passage itself. We look at Romans, or we look at Genesis 15, as we have, understand it in its context, in terms of what did Moses intend to communicate, and you take into account the audience that he wrote to, and that's what we've been doing through the book of Romans. We've been seeing what Paul is writing to the believer, believers in Rome, and now that we understand the passage and understand what it meant to them and what Paul meant, now we have the first stage. We have the interpretation. Now, when it comes to interpretation, there's one, generally one interpretation. There's not many interpretations. The bottom line is what did the original author intend? Just like when you are speaking with someone, you are communicating your ideas. You have that idea that you're trying to communicate. You don't want the person you're talking to to say, oh, okay, I'm going to go off and revise what you are saying, and I'm going to take it this way. That's what happens in marriages, right? <laughs> or politics. Or politics, yeah. Where you don't take what the intended message is. So there's one interpretation. So you do lots of effort to get to what did Paul mean? What did Moses mean? But when it comes to application, there are conceivably an infinite number of applications. But there are also misapplications. There's also the potential of misapplying a passage. So oftentimes a passage is misapplied because you miss the understanding of the passage itself. And don't take into account the historical setting of that passage. I'd just like to point out there's an infinite number of misapplications. Good. 
Linda the mathematician, uh, sees the alternative. And maybe there's even more than infinite number of misapplications. Is that possible, Linda? <laughs> okay. So the second principle we talked about last week is look for in every passage, and I even said even in a genealogy, you can apply a genealogy, look for in every passage a timeless truth. In other words, a truth that is contained in the passage but transcends, that's what transcends the passage. A principle. The Bible is not a set of a bunch of do's and don'ts, a series necessarily of lots of commands. Even some of the commands are not to be necessarily applied in a literal way as they were intended for the nation of Israel, for example. But there are principles in those commands, or there are principles in those promises that are timeless. So when we talk about timeless truth, it was true for the original audience. It is also true in time, from the time of the writing all the way up to our time. So we call that history. So it was true in the first century. It was true before that, true in Abraham's day. It is also true today. That's a timeless truth. So you draw that timeless truth. And now what you do is you just put it together such that it fits your circumstance. And that's what I mean by contemporary situation. In other words, how do I put that truth into my experience? How do I do some action or how do I change an attitude today, 21st century? But it's based on a proper interpretation where you draw out a timeless transcending truth, and now you can apply it. And those are the safeguards to have proper application. So for us, in general, 15.4, notice these passages. Somebody want to get that one real quick? Yeah, Romans 15.4. Somebody look up 1 Corinthians 9, and who wants to do that one? I'm going to give you two passages. Terry, which one are you going to do? Okay, who's got 15-4? Jacob again. And why don't you also, Terry, read 10, 6, and 11, and Galatians 3, 8. Somebody got that real quick. We're running out of it. Dwayne, you got that one. 15-4, Jacob. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. So everything that was written before... Everything that was written before Romans, all of the Old Testament, all of the books that preceded Romans, James, for example, Matthew, in fact, some of the other gospel. Everything that was written before was what? Written for what? For the Romans, first of all. But because it's scripture, it has that application to us. In other words, it's written to us as well because of inspiration. He's talking about the law in 1 Corinthians 9, but notice what he says in verse 10. Terry, you got that one. Surely he says, this for us doesn't mean that this was written for us because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in hope of sharing in the harvest. He's talking about the Mosaic law that we as believers are not under. We're not under the law but yet there are applications we can draw from the law. And in chapter 10, verse 9, he says this is for us in the first century and because it's inspired for us in the 21st century. He's talking about the wilderness experience of the children of Israel and Moses, and he's going to offer a warning in that. We won't read all the passage there, but notice what he says in verse 6, 10, 6. And then skip to verse 11. Now Here. these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Okay, so he's guiding you in application there. In fact, he's telling you what he's doing. He's giving you examples from the Old Testament incidents. Paul is doing the same thing with Abraham. It's written for us, and that's what he's saying in verse 24. And verse 11? These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. For us, us Corinthians, but also us Albuquerqueans. Galatians 3, 8, similarly. 
the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before him to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be So he preached to Abraham, but God is having in mind all that would be justified by faith. That's a kind of parallel passage to the Romans passage we've been looking at. And there's other passages, but that'll give you a few that are explicit in telling us an intent of all of Scripture for our benefit. And we already talked about, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. That reinforces the idea, the object of our faith. And then he who was delivered over because of our transgressions, kind of reviewing the work of Christ, delivered over that word in some translations in the Gospels is translated to, to arrest. It had a technical sense in terms of the legal system. And I think he's alluding to that whole arrest and delivering by the Jewish people to the Romans of Jesus, delivered because of our transgressions. In other words, God had in mind a solution to sin and was raised because of our justification. In other words, the resurrection, I think, it's a little problem here, but I don't have time to get into it. The best way to take it was raised because of our justification. Uh, the word because is the same in the Greek text, but I think it has somewhat of a slightly... Different emphasis in the last phrase was raised because of our justification. The resurrection, I think, confirms or validates. There's other scriptures that support that idea. Validates our justification. So he ends the chapter the way he began, dealing with justification. And it's by faith and faith alone. Abraham is the prime example. So, in closing, Abraham's faith is not only an example for justification, but I think in this context, because he deals with Abraham's whole life, it's an example for all life, and it's applicable to you and I today. Who wants to close? Mary Lee. Good Father, I thank you for giving Ray these insights to be able to share them with us. I pray, Father, that we will take what we have heard today to your word, that we will ponder it and mull it over. We will allow your word to be part of our very, very lives so that we might live every day in light of the truth of your scripture. May we people who are becoming steeped in you Becoming like you in every way. And so, Father, we are grateful we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Chapter 5 next week. Woo-hoo.